Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. First, uh, happy holiday to everybody out there who's celebrating 4th of July, a day off from work, long weekend, whatever you're doing, be safe, enjoy. There's so much wild stuff happening in the world that we don't always find time for joy, so I hope today and this long weekend has been a, a time for joy for you. Second is I have Andy Slavitt on the pod today, giving us another update on healthcare. I personally learned so much from him uh, and so much as we talked about healthcare. I hope you're learning too. Then we have Senator Shots from Hawaii also on the pod today. And uh, the last thing I'll say is about fear. So there are a lot of people uh, who have said that they are afraid in this moment. And we talk about fear uh, because of the current political context, because all of the things happening across a host of sectors. And I've heard some people say uh, that they are fearless, right? That the fear is completely gone. And I don't know if that is necessarily either healthy or uh, the best approach. I think that it makes sense to be fearful of some things. I think I get how the fear manifests. What I'd say is that uh, I believe that the goal is to make sure the fear doesn't overpower uh, the other emotions. That we know fear is often parasitic, that it eats at our courage and our joy, uh, and that when we are at our best, I think that our fear works in concert with our other emotions, but it doesn't overpower them. That part of our work as organizers, as activists, as citizens, is to acknowledge the fear and do the work anyway. It's to see the fear and not let it take over. And it's to manage the fear so that it doesn't become something that drives or motivates the way that you act in the world. That doesn't mean that the fear completely goes away. We are human. We are people who live full lives and our, all of our emotions can be present at the same time. And I think that with fear, it's about making sure that it doesn't overpower or eat at the other emotions. With that said, let's get into the pod. Andy, it's great to have you back. You are like the uh, one of the most consistent parts of Pod Save the People because uh, you are so informative and I appreciate you helping us wade through the healthcare uh, issue. Can you tell us uh, what's up? Well, since we talked last week, Deray, we've had a couple of developments. Um, first of all, um, the Republicans in the Senate who are trying to get this uh, this bill passed, this bill to, to repeal and replace the ACA, have figured out that they, that they don't have the votes. And so they originally wanted to get this done by the 4th of July, and they realized they, they are, they're not able to do it. So that's the first thing that happened, and I think the reason that that's happened is because uh, it's got, there's been a lot of visibility over the fact that a lot of people are going to lose coverage, that people on Medicaid are going to have a lot of that money taken away, and there's been some uh, pretty public analysis which has showed that um, people are going to pay more money to get to get their health insurance. Um, so they're busy working, uh, trying to make a deal, and I think everybody should know that when you don't hear something out of Washington for a couple of days, it doesn't mean nothing's happening. It generally means the doors are closed and people are, are, are trading deals. And the uh, McConnell, who is the leader in the Senate, is spending money uh, from the bill. He's got a couple of hundred billion dollars that he can spend in the bill and still make this bill 
uh, budget neutral. And he's working with different senators right now uh, to meet those needs. Some of them are very conservative people like Ted Cruz. And he's working on giving them things which would remove patient protections. And some of them are people from states that don't want to lose uh, coverage. So that's the job that's going on right now. Now, when we last spoke, you seemed to suggest that we shouldn't count McConnell out, right? That like he is a long game sort of guy. Do you still believe that? I do. I think his job has gotten harder because the more publicity there is over this bill and the more people over the 4th of July holiday uh, are getting in the face of their senators, the more difficult it gets. Conventional wisdom. Now, remember, there's 52 Republicans right now in the Senate, and he needs 50 votes plus Mike Pence, the vice president, to break the tie. So he can afford to lose two votes, but not three. The conventional wisdom is that there are two votes that may be out of reach. Susan Collins of Maine and Rand Paul in Kentucky. And they, they're both out of reach for two different reasons. But if that's true, then that means he can only afford to lose one more vote and the, or this thing fails. And so there's a lot of focus on a couple senators right now. Uh, Dean Heller is the senator in Nevada who is up again for re-election. There's a lot of pressure on him from both the, the Republican fundraisers and from uh, Democrats and from the, from the governor, uh, pushing both directions. Uh, Lisa Murkowski from Alaska uh, is also a lot of pressure on her. And, and there's a few others. But suffice it to say, if one more person defines, decides to vote no and the other two stick, then McConnell's not going to be able to get this passed. Now, why, um, why Rand Paul and why Susan Collins? Like, what, why are they backing out? So it's for complete opposite reasons. Rand Paul believes that not enough of the ACA is being torn down. He wants to see it all go. He wants to see it completely repealed. Really? And he believes, yep, yep. And he believes that there's just too much in its place. So he might be willing to compromise a little bit, but for, for me, from, from his take, uh, things like pre-existing conditions would need to more, be more explicitly removed, things of that nature. And, and the things that he wants would be things that, that a lot of other senators would have problems with. So that's why people think he's a no. Susan Collins, she's considered the most moderate senator in the Republican caucus. And she doesn't like the fact that a lot of people are losing Medicaid coverage. And she doesn't like the fact that a lot of people are going to have pre- problems with pre-existing conditions. And she's generally been willing to buck the party more than any other senator. And so she's been fairly firm, but for the complete opposite reason of Rand Paul. Now, can you uh, help us understand the, the, uh, all the, the hoopla and fuss around pre-existing conditions? I've heard a lot of people talk about that, you know, this and this is a pre-existing condition and pre-existing conditions are either under attack or they're a big issue. What is the issue? So the issue is this. If you were designing an insurance system for people, you'd say, well, we have to insure them for things that are going to make them sick. Uh, But if you were designing a system for insurance companies, um, you would say, well, let's not make the insurance company have to give insurance to somebody uh, who's likely to get sick. Or if we do, let's let them charge them more money. And before the ACA, that's exactly how it used to work. Now, what the ACA did was it made it illegal to even ask someone about what conditions they had. And I can tell you that in 2008, 2009, before the ACA, you'd have to fill out oftentimes a 40 or 50-page questionnaire and then wait a few 
sometimes weeks before the insurance company would decide whether they were going to cover you. And then if they covered you, they might say, well, we're going to cover you, but we're not going to cover you for anything related to asthma. Now, in order to do that, uh, in order to make the change we've made, uh, that's, that's uh, meant that insurance companies have had to do things differently. So there are people on the Republican side who, are want, who want to make, make it go back to the old way and the, and the way they want to do that. And the reason they want to do that is because they think it'll be cheaper for healthier people to buy insurance if we don't have to cover pre-existing conditions for people who have them. Got it. And is it true that, that the repeal, as we currently understand it, would mean that many more things are considered pre-existing conditions than currently are? Is that the case? Here, here's how it would work. That, that's, in effect, what happens. But I want to make sure I'm, I'm accurate and someone to tell you what, what it actually says. But the, what it actually says right now is that states would get to put in something with the federal government called a waiver. It would be at their option. So not every state would have to do it. But if they did it, the federal government would have to accept it. What that waiver would say is not whether or not a pre-existing condition needed to be covered, but whether or not the services that are provided by an insurance company need to be covered. So I'll give you an example. It would be illegal to say that you can't cover someone who has cancer, but it would be legal to say that you could not cover cancer services. So imagine someone who has cancer could buy a policy only to find out that things like chemotherapy and radiation and drugs that are only built for cancer aren't covered. So it's a backdoor way of not covering pre-existing mm. conditions, and it allows them to go to the public and say, see, we didn't exclude people with pre-existing conditions, but they really did. Wow, that is wild. I did not... Uh, in all the things I've read or heard, I would not heard somebody explain it that way. That makes a lot more sense. And and now it makes sense how Republicans are saying like, oh, no, it does still cover the conditions. They are, in essence, telling that that is a true statement. But what is dishonest or misleading is that they're not covering the services that would actually treat the conditions. That's what you're saying, right? Yeah, I call it a high five and a wink. Like they can high five and say, look, we're, we, we got this done, but they can wink at each other and and know what they what they've really accomplished and i think it's a really disingenuous form of government now uh if i understand correctly medicaid is the single biggest thing on the chopping block uh with the repeal that we've seen is that right yeah so the biggest issue in the senate is that there's a there's a uh uh proposal in this bill that would cut 25% of medicaid program over the next 10 years and 35% over the next 20 years. That is uh, an enormous cut to this program that you and I have talked about on your podcast a few times before. Andy, I also thought I read that now there's an effort to just repeal it and not replace it. Is that true? That is true. That is something that happened uh, over the last few days, and I, I, I should have mentioned it. Um, this is It's unclear whether it's a veiled threat, uh, or whether it's reality, but but Trump, using his Twitter thumbs, said that if the Senate is not able to repeal the ACA and replace it with the plan they're working on, that they ought to go ahead and repeal it and just replace it later. Now, I, I don't think we should take all that extremely seriously, because I think that takes our eye off the ball. I don't think that that has a lot of 
likelihood because the Senate is uh, not likely to do that. But I would say this, if, if that were to happen, the likelihood that there would ever be a replacement plan for the ACA would be very, very small. What's to come, Andy? What, what should we be looking for this week? I worry that there's a fatigue that's happening with the conversation about health care, that one of the ways that the Republicans are sort of being able to wade this through is that people are just exhausted from hearing about it so much. So what should we be looking for as the week goes on? Well, here's the good news. The good news is one way or another, this isn't going to last. This, at least this phase of the battle isn't going to last forever. The, they really have to have this voted on in the Senate by the end of July. And because it takes two weeks to get a score out of the CBO, that means that they really have to get this into the CBO within the next, by the end of this week. And, uh, but sometime one way or the other, by the end of July, this will be, uh, we'll be moving on to the next stage, which, which will, won't be over, over. But if I were to ask people to stay involved for just one more month and continue to uh, stay focused for one more month through the course of July, uh, that will be uh, that'll be incredibly helpful. Cool. Thanks, Andy. And thanks for keeping us posted. Thank you, DeRay. Don't go anywhere. More Politic the People is coming. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people.
Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. And here's the news with me, Clint Smith III, our resident academic, and Brittany Packnett, former member of the Ferguson Commission and appointed by President Obama to the Task Force on 21st Century Policing. What's going on, y'all? This is Clint Smith at Clint Smith III on Twitter. Hey, everyone. I'm Brittany Packnett, Miss Packetti on all social media. And this is DeRay. Um, it's great that we're all together at Clint. How old's the baby this week? He's good. He's a month old. Uh, family is, is coming in town periodically to help us out. And so it's good to give uh, grandma and grandpa the morning shift, which is super helpful. But uh, he is, he's also in this sort of phase where um, he just kind of, he, he's a cluster feeding. There's so many things about pregnancy and newborns and, and the entire process <laughs> that you sort of don't hear in the sort of like popular discourse that I'm, you just kind of learn as you go. Um, and I can say, I've talked to a, a, a couple of people about this, but I've really never had more respect for single parents than I do now. I mean, it is absolutely astonishing and remarkable that single parents are able to raise a child and multiple children on their own. Um, because, you know, my partner and I, and even with the help of grandparents, it's, uh, it's something that keeps you up all night. And so I, I, am, I look at every single parent now and, and see them as a sort of superhero. Ooh, have mercy. I saw on your Instagram, Clint, a picture of you with the baby swaddled to your chest. Uh, with the, I guess it was a grocery store cart in front of you, and you were like, ready, let's do this. And I was like, this is A, what real parenting looks like, and B, like I said on Instagram, how I hope you record the podcast every week. <laughs> he is, he is right here. He's not right here. He would be right here, but his mom would be upset. But uh, that's how you got to do it. That's how you got to be out here stunting at Trader Joe's. Stunt for the gram at Trader Joe's. That's the, <laughs> that's the way to, to do it in 2017. Well, <laughs> DeRay and I have been in your hometown of New Orleans, Louisiana this weekend. Um, not with baby strapped to our chest, although I hope one day that's my uh, destiny. Um, I, we were out here for Essence Fest. For those who don't know, Essence Magazine is... Um, a, one of the premier magazines in the African-American community, um, specifically catering to Black women um, and our needs, our struggles, our triumphs, our music, um, our uh, our fashion, our unity, our community. Um, and it's, it's a really amazing time. Chance the Rapper performed last night, which was a whole spiritual experience for me. It happened to be my late father's birthday. So I feel like if he were alive, my dad was a pastor. If he were alive, he would love Chance. And so I just very much felt him in that moment. But it's, it's been a good weekend um, and the big easy. Essence Fest is just so amazing because you have so many different uh, musical acts and so many different folks who represent both a lot of contemporary folks who are out there in the music scene right now, but also a whole lot of people from uh, back in the day who just bring you back to that nostalgic place. Like I remember I went to Essence last year and that was... Uh, the Bad Boy reunion tour was part of Essence yeah. Fest, and it was legit one of the best concerts I've ever been to. Like, Faith Evans comes out and starts singing all these songs. You're like, oh, snap, I've not heard this song in 15 <laughs> years, but it is still 
yeah. a banger. I and they just like, and then, you know, 112 comes out, Peaches, and it was crazy. Everybody should see uh, Solange perform live at some point because she's just uh, incredible in, in Chance the Rapper. It's like a spiritual a spiritual moment. I talked to Chance, uh, and uh, hopefully we'll get him on the pod at some time soon. But let us go uh, to the news now. So, yeah. So, uh, speaking of Solange, I, was, I saw on Twitter there was a meme that somebody had of Solange coming out of the elevator, and Jay-Z was behind her. And they said, on this night, three classic albums were created, um, which which I thought was very uh, a very acute observation and and very real because who knows what whether there will be a lemonade or a 444 or uh, or a seat at the table with without that night that kind of brought the issues in the in the Carter world to uh, to the fore. So speaking of and thinking about Jay Z. Uh, a lot of for those of you who have listened to Jay Z's new album, which is incredible um, and very much lives up to uh, a lot of the hype that has been around it. Part of what a lot of folks have been discussing around uh, Jay's work and what he talks about on the different tracks and on the different records are is this notion of like creating intergenerational wealth, right? And so Jay is reflecting on uh, the you know what it means to buy a piece of artwork that appreciates year by year by year, what it means to buy. Uh, buildings, what it means to buy space, and what it means to create a sort of uh, foundation of income and wealth that one can pass on to their children. And Jay raps about that very explicitly on um, many of those records. And so that had me thinking a lot about uh, a lot of the sociological literature around intergenerational wealth, right? And so I always go, there's this one uh, statistic that sort of is emblematic and captures the essence of the disparities that exist between Black folks and white folks with regard to wealth. And Sam was talking about this a little bit in the last podcast, uh, but the, the, it's important to sort of disentangle and uh, recognize the differences between income and wealth. And while there are uh, drastic differences with regard to the income between Black folks and white folks and Latino folks, um, there's also an even greater uh, canyon of uh, of space between black folks and white folks with regard to wealth. And what captures that is uh, at current growth rates, it would take black Americans 228 years to have as much wealth as white Americans have today. Uh, And I don't think that people fully recognize that. And and we talk about this sort of broadly all the time, but when I hear that number, I inevitably think of housing and I inevitably think of so many of the sort of state sanctioned public policy initiatives that have happened over the last several decades and the last couple centuries uh, that have laid the foundation for intergenerational wealth for certain communities while stripping it from other communities. So an example I alluded to last podcast, but that I talk a lot about is the New Deal, right? And so a lot about what we are sort of taught about the New Deal in our in our classrooms, in our American history classes growing up. And what I was taught in my American history class growing up is that the New Deal is the most progressive uh, series of legislative acts that have ever existed that FDR signed these after the Depression and it created the contemporary middle class and is responsible for the economic and social upward mobility of millions of Americans, which is true. What they don't tell you is that the very things and the very sort of uh, pieces of of social welfare and the social benefits and social programs that created that intergenerational wealth were not given to Black people, right? So Black people didn't have access to social security, minimum wage protection, housing mortgages, healthcare, GI Bill. And so what inevitably happens is that, you know, so they didn't, and they, what happened is they don't do it through 
uh, a sort of explicit black people do not can't have social security. What they did was they recognized that black people were disproportionately employed as farm workers and domestic workers, especially in the South. And they said, well, those are professions that won't uh, receive the benefits of Social Security, or those are professions that won't receive the benefits of minimum wage protection, and they often gave the they gave the discretion of how to decide who got these social benefits to the state. And as we know from a wide and expansive history, uh, the history of states' rights is often very much a pseudonym or a metonym for uh, a set of insidious and and sort of pernicious uh, ways of, of stripping opportunities and stripping resources from, from Black folks. So all that's to say, you know, what happens is if you have the very foundation of 20th century uh, wealth and the very foundations of what created the middle class in the 20th century, and you don't give that to a specific demographic of people, it is inevitable that across generations and generations and generations, the residue uh, of that decision and the, the series of those decisions will inevitably impact um, the generations following, right? So it's always strange to me when people make these kind of statements about like, oh, well, that happened, you know, years ago, or slavery is over, or the New Deal was 100 years ago, or whatever, um, not reckoning with the sort of larger intergenerational implications of what it means to not give somebody the opportunity to buy a house, or what it means not to give somebody the opportunity to um, have Social Security, or what it means not to give somebody the foundation upon which people can build uh, homes and communities and and the sort of uh, sort of large scale opportunities that afford young people to have a better life than their parents did. Yeah, everything you're talking about is so critical, especially um, the acknowledgement of how much people are willing to ignore the truth of history of. Um, of uh, fi- the kind of financial regulations and racist financial regulations that you're talking about, how much people are willing to ignore that those were actually a thing and just simply say, right, the people are supposed to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And I think that is emblematic of the broader conversation we have to have um, about uh, uh, the broader conversation we have to have that roots our current reality in the truth of history. You know, um, the American Enterprise Institute, which is a think tank, a conservative think tank out of D.C., tweeted today, um, you know, Amer- they, they were um, paraphrasing a speech from President Calvin Coolidge saying that, you know, America was not a place that was founded on, uh, to use their words, blood or ethnicity, but was rather founded on ideas. And I'm like, I believe that African-Americans and, and American Indians or Native Americans would fundamentally disagree with you. Um, but this willingness to ignore what really happened because it didn't happen to your people or because it is not your cultural legacy uh, is not only problematic, right? And we, we joke about it on, on Twitter and the social media spaces, but it's really dangerous. It teaches people that um, if you do not ha- enjoy the kind of generational wealth that you're talking about, Clint, that it is somehow your own fault, right? That you were lazy, that you are, that it is your fault that you do not have access to that kind of capital, that it must be your family's fault. Um, and that is how we continue to decrease people's humanity. Um, and we, we build policy and entire structures based on, on those ideas. And so the insidious nature of what you're talking about, I believe, um, 
permeates a, a lot of things in our in our culture and in our society. Uh, and I know that we often joke about it, but it really, really is dangerous. It is interesting too, you know, when I think about this, it's, I'm reminded of a couple of things. One is that this is intentional. Like people are poor and are living in deep poverty, not because of a series of bad choices that they made often, uh, but it is because of a series of choices that were made by people in power that limited the choices that they could make. And I think that that perspective is really important. The second is that when we, uh, given context of the racial wealth gap is uh, Demos did a study of 2011 data, and what they showed is that the median white household had $111,000 in wealth holdings compared to just 7000 uh, for the median Black household and about 8000 for the median Latino household. So the disparity is so huge. And what people don't realize is that the single biggest asset that most uh, people ever have is a home. So when Clint, when Clint, you talk about like the history of redlining and and loans for houses as like a as a wrong, you know, people hear that and sort of gloss over it. But it is, I don't know a way right now to give people context for uh, for understanding the magnitude of houses as assets, especially when we think about intergenerational wealth. Hundred percent. I mean, I think that there is, as you said, there's no single larger asset that American American family can have than a home. And and so and this operates sort of insidiously on on two fronts, right? So one, through the history of redlining, through the history of zoning policy, uh, black people have not been given the opportunity to even buy homes in the first place. Like black people with means, right? So we're not talking about poor black folks who couldn't afford a home. We're talking about middle class black folks who wanted to buy homes in certain neighborhoods where the value of the house would appreciate over the course of years and years and decades and decades. weren't allowed to buy those homes for at a long period of time. And in many ways, it's still happening now, right? It doesn't get as much attention, but we know that housing discrimination is still uh, deeply profound. And that's one of the dangers of having someone like Ben Carson, um, who believes that poverty is, is the result of a mindset um, in charge of the uh, HUD, because he, he did not uh, sort of taking, he has a very sort of ahistoric uh, kind of conception of, of what, poverty looks like and, and how people end up living in poverty. So one, a lot of folks can't even purchase homes in the first place because of discrimination. But for those who can purchase homes, um, there's sort of study after study after study that demonstrates that the homes that Black people are able to get mortgages for, the homes that Black people are able to uh, move into, don't appreciate at the same rate that homes in, in more affluent and white neighborhoods do, even though those same folks, those same Black folks could afford the home in uh, the place where the housing value would appreciate more and more. So, so I think talking about housing is essential. Another thing I wanted to say was all three of us are educators and have been educators in both traditional and um, non-traditional classroom context. And part of what I think we often talk about, oh, white people don't understand this and it has these sets of implications. I think that is definitely true. I also think that we don't really reckon with what it means for a young person to grow up being told their entire lives that the reason that their community looks the way that it does is because of the people in that community and not getting their own and not being told that the reason that this community looks the way that it does and the people in your community live the way that they do is because of decades and decades of like specific state sanctioned public policy and decisions that people made to prioritize certain neighborhoods and not prioritize yours. And I think that we, I always I remember there's this one time where a student came up to me um, 
And he was like, that's just how it is here, Mr. Smith. Like, that's just how things are. And, and they internalize that, right? Because that's what the world is telling them day after day. And so, you know, if people aren't sharing with them that actually the reason that there are no grocery stores here or the reason that uh, all the homes are dilapidated or the reason that uh, there's so much violence is because of decades of decisions made by politicians and policymakers that major schools and major community centers and major homes look that way. Um, we're purposeful, right? And, and, but if we're not telling them, if we're not sharing that with our students, then they grow up in these contexts where they come to internalize sometimes the, the very pathologies that we're often fighting against because they don't, they don't have the sort of language or understanding to, to push back against that. What about people who are, are saying that in the spirit of like, I'm going to tell you that this is yours so that you can fix it as opposed to sort of offloading things to some big brother in, in, and when it's offloaded to Big Brother, that there seems to be less room for individual agency. Like, what would you say to to people who sort of push on what you said in that way? So I don't think that that a recognition of structural and systemic reality that has shaped the contemporary landscape of Black communities is mutually exclusive from a recognition of agency. Right? I don't think, and if anything, I think it gives people more agency. Because I think that they then recognize that this is not reflective of a cultural pathology that they have been told about themselves and about their communities oftentimes. And is instead, these are decisions that were made by people who, and, and if you do that with a sort of nuanced uh, pedagogy of, of understanding power and like how power operates and that, you know, the world is a social construction and thus it can be reconstructed and deconstructed and made into something new. So I don't necessarily see those two things in tension. I agree with you that I think sometimes people can use it in a way that is sort of nefarious. And sometimes people can use it in a way that makes it uh, suggest that, oh, well, you know, it's the man and there's nothing we can do about it. But I don't actually think that that is uh, reflective of, of what the uh, sort of engaging in a sort of broader understanding of the history that have made certain parts of this country look one way and certain parts of this community look the other way. I mean, people have done this, you all know, that folks have done this extensively with Ferguson and St. Louis over the course of the past three or four years, right? Where people are saying the reason that Ferguson looked the way that it did and the reason that the police force operated the way that it did and that people lived in the conditions that they did was not reflective of the people in Ferguson or like a culture that existed there or uh, genetic phenomena. It was instead because politicians in Missouri made a set of decisions over the course of many, many years that shaped the landscape of of different cities and municipalities in that space. And so, so yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily believe that those things are intention. Um, I think that we can only, I think one sort of is, uh, regains a sense of agency, if you will, once they are given a, a broader set of information as to why the world uh, looks the way that it does. I think that's critically important, right? Discussing um, systemic issues does not negate individual agency. Rather, it enables individual agency, right? Now I am working full contact with a full deck of cars instead of um, being forced to play the hand that I was dealt. Um, and I think that level of consciousness, especially as, like you said, as educators, is something that's critical to impart on young people 
Um, but on everyone, as we tried to increase individual agency, right? Uh, the other point that I wanted to make, you brought up Ben Carson. And if we go back to this idea that people readily ignore uh, the systemic history of oppression in this country in order to um, look justify their looking down on of other people, um, I'm often reminded that individual success uh, does not prove anything, right? Um, and that an, an exception does not prove the rule. So, you know, we heard this when people said, well, Barack Obama is president, so clearly we don't live in a racist country. One Black man or biracial man, as it were, in the White House um, does not uh, erase decades of history, just like Hillary Clinton coming very close to the White House does not erase decades of sexism. Um, and often people look to people like Ben Carson, and I believe that he has fallen into this trap too. And they said, if Ben Carson can do it, anyone can do it. Instead of recognizing that systems of oppression hold entire communities back. Um, um, and, and, and again, an exception does improve the rule. Um, but I agree. I think that that level of consciousness gives people an increased amount of agency in that list. And I think that your point around that is really important because the systems of oppression necessitate that there are people who are exceptions to the rule in order for folks to point to those people as a means to justify the existence of a system that otherwise oppresses the, the vast majority of folks. So, you know, whether it's white supremacy, whether it's patriarchy, whether it's, uh, you know, heterosexism, whether it's all of these things necessitate that there are people who who sort of make it through the cracks um, so that folks who are, are complicit or are direct participants in that oppression can say, look, Obama is president. Look, Oprah makes all that money. Look, uh, Hillary was almost president. And you can use all of those to justify what we otherwise know as like a deeply uh, oppressive overall system. I think we should, um, this makes me think about a couple of things and, and Clint, we need to go to your second piece of news, but I definitely want to get an expert on housing so that we can talk about this a little bit more around uh, what it means to have assets. Um, Clint and Brittany, I am this, you know, we haven't talked about this offline, so we're having it for the first time here. Um, I think you're right about this idea of like the exception is a necessary component. I think that's fascinating. Uh, Brittany and this idea that the exception doesn't prove the rule. Um, and I think that you both really awfully helped explain that we can acknowledge systemic wrongdoing um, while also like giving people agency. Because what we know to be true is that one of the ways that oppression works, right, is that it performs this innocence that's like we didn't mean to do it, didn't didn't plan for it to have the impact that it has, but you should just be thankful that we are acknowledging right now that we can move forward without acknowledging the past trauma. So we can um, acknowledge a historical trauma without uh, taking away from uh, the agency that people have. And I think that makes a lot of sense. We should continue that. So Clint, you're number two. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I just want to give a couple book recommendations for folks who are interested in uh, thinking about this more. I would say, uh, Ira Katz Nelson, who's a historian and political scientist at Columbia University, wrote a book called When Affirmative Action Was White that outlines the racist history of the New Deal. Um, there is a book that just came out called The Color of Law uh, that sort of has a deeply comprehensive outline of the history of um, housing discrimination in the United States. And then there's a book uh, called Black Wealth, White Wealth that sort of analyzes how the history of, of Black inequality and white inequality are vastly different because they stem from vastly different places. 
um, all three of those are really have been really important um, sociological and historical texts for me in thinking about a lot of these uh, issues, and, and I think they would definitely be helpful for uh, any of our listeners. Uh, so the second piece of news that I have has to do with um, it's been it's sort of been in the news for the past a couple months, but but has resurfaced for me is this idea that because of the sort of renewed draconian policies around immigration, uh, the levels of reporting around domestic violence, around rape, uh, and around uh, other sorts of crimes that. Uh, directly affect women and children um, have gone down in uh, Latino communities. And, and a lot of folks are attributing that directly to the fact that uh, people are afraid to report if their partner is uh, abusing them or if someone is abusing their children because they're afraid to involve themselves at all in the uh, governmental system, right, to have their information uh, documented in that way, if they are not an authorized citizen, um, they fear that they'll go in to say, my, my partner is beating me and will end up being deported as a result. Uh, and I think, you know, part of the, there's so much noise happening with the Trump administration, uh, but the, we can't forget the sort of, uh, side effects of many of the of the policies and the sort of cultural shifts that are taking place in a lot of these departmental agencies that are like deeply affecting people's lives every single day, right? There are women and children who are forced to stay in the homes of their abusers because they are afraid that if they go report them, they will be deported. And and that is, is so frightening uh, and that is so scary. And I recently had the opportunity to sit down with uh, uh, several undocumented young people in Maryland. And part of what I thought was really interesting and really unsettling was we often have this sort of discussion in Black communities about the, the quote-unquote talk, right? Like the talk that Black parents have to give their children uh, around how to uh, navigate a world that is often taught to fear them. Uh, and something that I hadn't fully considered was that in the undocumented community, there is there's a, its own sort of iteration of the talk. And I was talking with young, these young people and they were talking about how when they've turned, you know, nine, 10, 11 years old, their parents started having conversations with them saying, if one of us are deported, you need to go to your aunt's house. You need to go to your friend's house. Don't let them. Uh, and if somebody asks you if you knew who we were, say you don't. And so there's almost this sort of, in the same way that there's a fire escape plan, right, for students at a school, there's almost a, a, a plan um, that like young undocumented folks have to understand if one of their parents or guardians or siblings get deported and the entire infrastructure of that plan is centered on making sure that uh, ICE can't get to other people connected to that person. So you have folks who are taught to not uh, acknowledge their mother or their father or to say they don't know those people. And that's something that intuitively makes a lot of sense, but that I hadn't necessarily considered as a as a fundamental component of what it means to grow up and maintain a sense of safety um, when you're an undocumented young person. Yeah, I spend a lot of time in my full-time work um, supporting um, undocumented teachers and students um, and, and, and figuring out how institutions can better stand by them um, in support of some just brilliant people I have on my team leading that work. Um, and I, I was with um, a principal in Dallas, Texas, 
of an elementary school, uh, a white man who uh, took that a step further to your point, Clint, about this kind of this kind of fire escape plan, right? Or this plan that you have to have um, in these circumstances and took that a step further and said, how do we as an institution make sure that we help young people actualize whatever plan their family needs to have in place for them? And so we essentially created a, a set of documents, folders, um, for, for family members to leave in a trusted and safe place information about where their child should go if for some reason they are deported, you know, what the, what their medications are, um, who to con- emergency contact if the parents are not there, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and he caught a lot of flack for that, which I found fascinating because, not fascinating, uh, unfortunately unsurprising, but I, I found that awful because this is not a political conversation, right? We are talking about the fundamental safety of children. And what sickens me is how much people politicize that, that matter uh, and how much people um, refuse to acknowledge the humanity and the, the uh, humane need for safety for a child based on their citizenship or their parents' status um, or the, the child's race or their first language. Um, and, and so that has been frustrating to see, but it's been, it's been also empowering to see how many folks who in particular lead institutions, whether it be a school or a university um, or, you know, a place of employment who are figuring out all of the ways aside from policy to actually create alternative systems, information systems to keep people protected and keep people safe. Um, which, again, is, is not a political issue. It's an issue of humanity. I didn't know that this was a talk that was happening in the uh, undocumented community. So that is new to me. It is a reminder, too, about the way that the federal government like bears onto people's lives. Is There was so much rhetoric happening on um there was so much rhetoric happening during the election again about this idea that like the federal government doesn't matter that like is everything's local everything's local and what we know to be true is that that is uh that that's actually not the case i what this makes me think about the most is sort of unrelated to the issue directly but it's a, there's so many people who are like you know oh one of the good things that happened because of trump one of the good, like this idea that uh, we should be praising the level of activism that has happened in the level of organizing level of mobilizing and I and I get the intent. I am also mindful that we people are mobilizing and they're they're activists and they're organizers because of a response to trauma, and that the response to trauma shouldn't be there in the first place. So I'm always like cautious about how people are like excited about uh, excited about the energy in this moment because I know that the excitement that it's not excitement. It's like necessity. It is urgent because it's real people's lives impacted. Like I wasn't excited to get tear gas. I wasn't excited to sit in jail. I did those things because they were important and necessary in those moments and continue to be. And when I think about conversations that happen, like the talk in undocumented families, like parents aren't excited to do that. They aren't like, you know, people aren't waking up being like, let me put together this binder for my family gets separated. Like nobody, no, that's not a joyful thing, even if people do it well. Uh, they're doing it in response to trauma, and we should uh, focus our energy on making sure there's no more trauma. And I, I've been wrestling with that in my own spaces because so many people are like, oh, I'm just so excited about all the energy. And I'm like, you know, I would love to be excited about not having to put this energy into this work because there wouldn't be trauma. Yeah. And, you know, we've often said about protests, we do this because we have to, not because we want to. Uh, and I think, I think it's, the same is true here. I also worry about what happens when the energy fades 
uh, because we tend to have short attention spans. And what happens when the energy around solving problems, supporting people, standing in solidarity with people fades um, and families are still suffering. The problems tend not to disappear just because our attention has. And I was talking about this with a friend the other day, but I, I think that a uh, sort of case study in that in many ways was the election of Barack Obama, right? I think back in 2008, there was so much excitement and energy and, and this sort of, in many ways, what felt like a sort of unprecedented mobilization, especially of young people around electing the first black president and electing this person who, who really represented in, in many folks' minds the ideals uh, and values that we, we all espoused and that we all stood for and, and, and want in, represented in, in the federal government. Uh, and I think what happened, uh, and, and some, some political theorists have written about this a bit, but all of the sort of organizing and protest energy that sort of existed around more issue-specific phenomena was sort of all coalesced around him. And once we elected Barack Obama, a lot of people uh, took their foot off the gas. And, I, and I'm, you know, I, I was a college junior at the time. And so I, I, I sort of include myself and make myself complicit in what it meant to like put a lot of energy into electing this person and then projecting all of my ideals onto him rather than recognizing that what was actually necessary was like, okay, now this person who is amenable to uh, ideas that, that are, and values that matter to us, now you have to sort of ramp up the pressure, right? And so part of what I think the last several years have been with the movement for Black Lives, with Fight for 15, and with union work is, is a recognition that, uh, that the work of protest is sort of necessarily needs to evolve and and one can't simply the doesn't have the luxury of saying like once this one thing is done once this one initiative is done or once this one person is in office or or what have you uh that you can sort of take your foot off the gas and i think unfortunately now we're in a moment where uh the the unfortunate necessity of protest and and making the uh you know, in this moment, like the, the very real implications of, of destroying the Affordable Care Act, um, bringing that to the attention of people through protest, as you guys always say, protest is telling the truth in public, right? And so I think it's essential to bring that to people's attention. But, but even if we stop the Affordable Care Act from being repealed, the, the energy around it can't stop there. Um, and, and I hope that, you know, that's something that I'm always trying to remind myself of that, the uh, this work is, is ongoing, even when it's not popular, even when it's not sexy, even when it is, is exhausting and it's the last thing you want to do. Those are almost the moments in which it needs to be done the most. So for my two pieces of news, things that, um, are very thought provoking for me, and the first of which I'm not necessarily an expert in. Um, but I think it's an important piece of news that could probably get lost in the shuffle of lots of things that have been happening this week. Um, in British Columbia, the government there has uh, issued a health card for the first baby ever uh, without a specified gender in that space. Um, the baby's parent is also gender nonconforming um, and is similarly fighting for that to be marked on the birth certificate. Apparently, that's a very uphill climb. Um, but... Um, the parent wants to, uh, quote, raise the baby in such a way that until they have a sense of self and command of vocabulary to tell me who they are, I'm recognizing them as a baby and trying to give them all the love and support to be the most whole person they can be outside of the restrictions that come with the boy box and the girl box. 
Um, and so, like, I, I am cisgender. Um, and so I recognize that privilege, but I wanted to amplify a story um, that I think is, is critically important. We often talk about how language evolves. Um, and I wouldn't say that gender identities have evolved, but rather our recognition of them is hopefully evolving. And so I'm hoping to, that this is something um, that can continue to evolve and that our understanding of of uh, gender and gendering of children is something that can um, move forward with um, thoughtfulness and care for people. This is interesting and something that as a new father, uh, I, I think a lot about, I, I think what does it mean to, uh, what sort of ideas, what sort of language, what sort of um, values and notions around sex and gender and sexual orientation am I presenting my son with and, and how am I ensuring that he grows up uh, both with a recognition of systems uh, of patriarchy and systems of sexism and, um, and systems that often force people to conform and, and perform in specifically gendered ways um, and so to give him that recognition and then also to, to share with him that that is not uh, the expectation that his mother and I have of him. Right. So it's, so it's interesting thinking, trying to be thoughtful and purposeful about raising uh, a young, a young person to, to try to think differently about uh, gender in a way that is not so, uh, so specifically demarcated, and, and so specifically binary in the ways that we often think about it, right? And so just to, to make sure that we are continuously educating ourselves, um, as, as both his, his mother and I are cishet uh, folks, thinking of what does it mean to um, just be thoughtful and be uh, full of uh, making sure that the conversations are, are full of empathy and what books are we presenting him with? What, uh, what folks are, are, you know, what, with music, what I mean, and, and you, the more you start to think about this, the more you realize the ways that our entire society is is set up upon these like very binary uh, notions of uh, of gender, and and how can we, as as responsible parents, um, sort of complicate that notion a little bit. It's a reminder that um, people are doing the work of expanding where we understand options to be everywhere across the country, like that it's happening. And some of this is about making sure that we uh, know what's happening so that we can replicate it in other places. And I think that this is a an example of like broadening people's scope and understanding in a practical way and not just a theoretical way. So we've been talking about gender identity for a long time in the literature and in the academy. And this is that transition from thought to action at scale, like at the state level. And I think that uh, that's actually really powerful for for activists and organizers and citizens to help replicate B, P? Yeah, the only other thing that I'll say is this has me also reflecting on not just actual gender identities and the binary that exists there, but the toxicity of traditional masculinity and femininity as we've been presenting it. So I remember the first time I ever saw um, uh, a young person in my life dressed up for Halloween as Dr. McStuffins, who you don't have kids and you don't know about the character is a young black girl um, who I think is like basically like plays doctor, like on her pets or her stuffed animals. I don't know. The, I don't have kids, but I don't know all the story. Like, 
But I was just very excited to see all these little black girls excited to run around and be a doctor. Um, not just because I want little little black kids to be whatever they want to be, but also this idea that, yes, as a young woman, you can dress up as princesses, but you can also dress up as a soccer player or as a doctor or whatever. Um, and that, you know, like, you know, as a man, if you want to wear a romp him, then, like, if you feel good in it, then great. Like, it's, it, for me, it is not just about uh, gender binaries. Obviously, that is a critical conversation. That's why I brought up this article. But more broadly, the stereotypes of masculinity and femininity that we in, just indoctrinate children with at such a young age, um, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that we continue to expand those definitions. My second piece of news um, is something that I do have a bit more <laughs> of an opinion about. Um, so according to many news sources, the resident of Sally Hemings, uh, who, um, was enslaved on the Monticello plantation by Thomas Jefferson, um, and who bore many of Thomas Jefferson's children. There are literally hundreds of descendants of Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings that, that have lived, uh, in this country. Um, that residence was found. Um, one of the things that I really appreciate about this story, uh, is that it is, um, evidence of why diversity in all uh, in all fields matters. Um, so it was a number of Black historians and archaeologists that helped make this important discovery. Um, and without people who have a particular affinity for and or care about a lot of the lost pieces of history that uh, have to do with marginalized people, um, we will we will not discover these kinds of things. But I have two uh, qualms with the way this has been being reported. Uh, NBC News used the word mistress when reporting um, this, this story. So it said, Thomas Jefferson's mistress, Sally Hemings, secret quarters finally discovered. Um, one is that the secret quarters were not, in fact, quarters. It was a windowless room um, that was very near where Thomas Jefferson slept. And so uh, that brings me to my second frustration, which is the use of the word mistress is wholly inappropriate here. I know that this conversation was had by folks like Angela Ryan, Simone Sanders, who are dear sister friends of mine, um, when, when Bill Mayer used the N-word uh, um, in, in respect to the enslavement of our ancestors. Um, and they reminded Bill that actually there is a, a deeply insidious um, history not just to that word, but to this idea of being a, a house nigger, to use the correct phrase. Um, and so I, for me, this feels as uh, problematic and is, quite frankly, as a Black woman, deeply painful because Sally Hemings was not a mistress, right? A mistress is someone who engages in a, a consensual relationship with a married man of their own volition and of their own agency. Enslaved people did not have agency in the way that a mistress does. That is not to say that enslaved people did not exercise whatever agency they possibly could, and it's important to recognize that, um, but it is deeply offensive and problematic to think of Sally Hemings or the thousands of Black women that were in Sally Hemings' position, whose names we don't know all across this country and throughout history, um, to be addressed as a mistress, because she wasn't. She was raped. Um, she was forced into the positions that she was in. Um, and I think I wanted to bring that up because I think it's a teachable moment for us to think about the language that we choose, to think about the choices that we make and how we report things. I'm glad to see that her uh, room is going to be restored and that um, her presence uh, in that in that space of Monticello is not going to continue to be ignored. Um, and I'm thankful to her descendants who have been pushing for her recognition for a number of years. 
But, um, yeah, I'm just going to let me be very clear. I'm going to need all the news outlets to stop using the word mistress when you are talking about enslaved black women who um, were forcibly uh, raped by their slave owners. Period. End of story. We should not be making this mistake anymore in 2017. So I've been uh, rereading this book, The Half Has Never Been Told, by uh, Cornell University historian uh, Ed Baptist. And, and that's a, an incredible uh, piece of uh, historical literature, and, and I recommend it to, to everyone. It's, it's largely talking about the role of the relationship between capitalism and slavery and debunking the, the notion that um, some seek to espouse that, uh, that cap- slavery was actually bad for capitalism and that the U.S. economy, as we understand it today, was not built on the institution of slavery. Um, and so he kind of debunks that piece by piece. But part of what he discusses in the book um, which I think is is really important and and touches on what what Brittany's discussing is the the way that we fail to discuss the like what actually the the what actually took place with regard to the relationship between white slaveholders and black enslaved people and black enslaved women um, and that you know he he talks about uh, young white slaveholders uh, going down to New Orleans to purchase uh, black women with the explicit purpose of like making them their sexual objects, right? And, and tools for their own sexual uh, experiences. And, and, and I don't, that, that, that for me was not really ever part or essential to the discussion around slavery when I was growing up. Like it was, it felt very uh, peripheral if discussed at all, but like, the institution of slavery fundamentally uh, sort of encouraged white men to exercise sexual domination over black women for centuries. And, and, and I don't think that we have fully, as a society, like reckoned with that, reckoned with the implications of that, and reckoned with what that means for how we think about uh, the case, uh, a case like Sally Hemings, right? Like, what does it mean for this black woman to have born, uh, given birth to so many of, of Thomas Jefferson's children? And how can we more fully account for it's something, it's, it's coercion is not even the right word, but like what it means for her to literally be that man's property, right? Like what what, how can we even begin to conceive of a sexual or romantic relationship in the context of someone owning another person or even someone buying another person with the specific intention of using them in that sort of way? So, it, it's so you know, obviously, I agree with Brittany around the way that uh, the sort of nomenclature that's being used around Sally Hemings. I hope we use it as an opportunity to think more deeply around uh, the ways that we discuss um, how Black enslaved women were were used in in horrific ways um, for uh, the the benefit um, of of white men in in ways that we're often not comfortable discussing. Now I go to my uh, first piece of news is about uh, marijuana. So in D.C., they just passed the city council just advanced legislation that would give uh, local minority-owned companies a preference when applying for licenses to open medical marijuana businesses. So 
As we know, uh, black people were disproportionately targeted during the war on drugs, and so many people are in jail for low-level drug offenses and in jail for a very long time, whether it's for weed or, or other drugs. And there are cities across the country that are accounting for that in the context of the legalization of selling marijuana, using marijuana, by making sure that licenses are being held for people of color, right? That uh, it is deeply unfair that suddenly in 2017 where the you know the science hasn't changed so much but weed is suddenly socially acceptable uh, that now there's so many people who spent forever in jail so they would be out of the market um, and that these laws help put people back in the game and in the legal in the legal game so DC has moved forward the mayor hasn't signed it yet but has said that she is going to work with the city council on it and I didn't know and what I learned recently, Uh, is that Oakland has actually gone further, Oakland, California, and they specifically set aside half of all business permits for marijuana uh, for people arrested for drug crimes in the city or who come from neighborhoods with many drug arrests. So that is uh, one of the most progressive ways that this has been accounted for. And then other states like Illinois, Pennsylvania, and Florida have taken steps to give preferences to to minority uh, marijuana entrepreneurs. And Maryland actually just... Uh, entertained uh, a law that would have done this too, but it failed. So uh, there's some legal action uh, pending right now uh, in the courts that'll probably go up in July around diversity uh, with the marijuana regulators in Maryland. But that's sort of the state of where we are with that issue. And I thought that was so interesting because I uh, didn't know that was happening. Yeah, the ACLU had a really important report uh, a few years ago that was sort of outlining large uh, sort of disparities with regard to the uh, treatment uh, in the criminal justice system of marijuana um, along racial lines. And, and you know, we, we know these statistics, uh, you know, in a lot of us know these statistics. And, and I talked in my first appearance on the podcast um, about how these statistics can often be used in ways that run counter to um, what it, run counter to the ways that we think they'll be used or perceived. But I still think that 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 we need to understand these numbers regardless. But, you know, so, so for example, black folks are almost four times more likely to be arrested for marijuana possession as compared to their white counterparts, even though um, all of the data suggests that the, the use um, of marijuana is equal between the two. We know that uh, between 2001 and 2010, um, the cost of enforcing uh, marijuana laws was $3.6 billion a year. And, and, you know, with the constant discussion around how we're in a, we're in debt, that we're in a deficit and uh, budget slashing that has happened throughout states and at the federal level for the past several years, um, you know, we can come up with a myriad of, of different ways that that money can be used. So, uh, you know, again, to bring it back to the Jay-Z album, um, I don't remember which, which record it is, but he has a track where he's talking about um, this exact thing where he's talking about, you know, now that, uh, kids in Colorado uh, can smoke weed. You know, white folks are founding these uh, and starting these weed dispensaries um, that are the very for the in the, and selling the very thing that put you know tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of, of uh, young black folks um, in in the criminal justice system. So uh, I think that the work that DC is doing on this is is an important recognition um, of uh, an opportunity for a local government to. Uh, step in and make sure that the folks who have been disproportionately affected by the 
criminalization of marijuana um, also have an opportunity to benefit from uh, from its existence as a part of the legalized market. You know, the only thing I'll add um, is I, you know, believe this ties back to what you were saying in the very beginning, Clint, about generational wealth and about all of the insidious ways in which marginalized communities and people of color were boxed out of wealth-making opportunities, wealth-building opportunities. Um, I know we keep saying we're going to have a conversation about capitalism, and we absolutely should. Um, but while it is um, the law of the land, so to speak, um, participation and access by marginalized communities and by people of color is, is a critical conversation to be had, um, and it's critical to ensure. Uh, and so, yes, the ways in which um, we either intentionally secure access for all people or intentionally restrict access for marginalized people, as has been happening in this industry thus far, um, will lead to the exact same kind of outcomes that we were talking about in the very beginning of this segment. I think the other thing, though, is that that, that means that is emblematic of what all of these conversations are about. When we're talking about issues of racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, and how they manifest in people's real lives as a result of policy, I think people ex want to see a law that is written that says no Black people can or no trans people can. And unfortunately, plenty of, law plenty of laws are written like that right now. I mean, the bathroom bill is a perfect example. Um, but that is that is not how politics works. People are smarter than that. Um, and so I just want to encourage folks to look at all of the, uh, the ways in which policy is applied in real life versus exactly what the letter of the law says and how the letter of the law is used to pervert equity and justice for people um, as you explore issues like everything from transportation in your city and where train lines run and where public transportation doesn't run to the legalization of marijuana and who is allowed to participate in that industry and who cannot. Brittany, Clint, uh, there we go. Thanks, y'all. Appreciate it. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free. Shopify.com slash podcast free. The Crooked Store's latest collection has a clear message for anyone trying to take away abortion rights. Don't. The No Trespassing collection features four different designs, each inspired by a different state where abortion is under attack. There's Stay Out of My Swamp for Florida, Stay Out of My Hole for Arizona, Stay Out of My Prickly Pear for Texas, and Stay Out of My Strip for Nevada. But obviously, I'll be wearing these no matter where I am. A portion of proceeds from the collection will go to Vote Save America's F-Bands, the Fight Back Fund, which currently is supporting abortion rights organizations across Arizona, Nevada, and Florida. Head to cricket.com slash store to shop. Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show, Hysteria, is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't... <laughs> 
Ah, uh, you heard it here first. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. And now my conversation with Senator Schatz from Hawaii. Senator Schatz, I'm excited for you to join me today on Pod Save the People. Thanks, DeRay. Thanks for having me. I love your show. I appreciate it. So you are one of the senators from Hawaii. I am. Can you talk to us about how you how you got to the Senate before we talk about the issues of the day? So I was uh, I was a community organizer in the environmental space right out of college. I, I uh, you know, I grew up in Hawaii, uh, you know, kind of concerned with the natural environment, as a lot of local uh, kids uh, are. And I just knew I wasn't sure what I was going to do. But the one thing I wanted to focus on was Hawaii's environment. So I came home from college in, in Southern California, and I uh, started a nonprofit organization uh, designated to get young people involved in community service for the environment. And I I didn't really know what I was doing, except that I had this instinct that kids wanted to help and that organizations could actually use their help. And so I just sort of became uh, a connector. I would go to schools and talk about Hawaii's environmental problems, and uh, and then I would go to organizations and talk about uh, what they needed in terms of you know physical help, uh, trail uh, maintenance, you know, uh, planting trees, uh, stuff in the ocean, whatever needed to be done in Hawaii's environment. And it kind of took off, and it was going really well for four or five years. Um, and, and some of that work took me to the Hawaii legislature. And that was when I started to realize that, you know, in a lot of instances, especially environmentally, things were happening literally upstream uh, that were about policy, that were not uh, so much things that I could solve on my own with my two hands or even with, you know, several dozen uh, high school kids. And so um, I kind of had a long conversation with my dad about it, and he encouraged me to, to run for the legislature, but I was 25. Um and he sort of pushed me through the uh, the sort of, I think, the, the, the challenge of being too young uh, to run for the legislature. And I just kind of went for it. I I, uh, I wore out three pairs of shoes, knocked on every door and won by 400 votes. Uh, and I've been in politics ever since, uh, uh, organized for, for Barack Obama in 2008 and, and served uh, as Democratic Party chairman and lieutenant governor and then was sort of unexpectedly elevated to the Senate when, when, the, when the late, great uh, Danny Noy uh, passed away. Uh, but, you know, as, as you know, DeRay, you sort of can't pick your timing, and here I am. And your father, uh, I just learned this, your father was involved in the Tuskegee, in uncovering the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, is that correct? That's right. You know, uh, so my dad was a, a physician, uh, taught internal medicine, and, uh, you know, he was right out of college, or right out of medical school, I should say, and he read about the Tuskegee experiments, you know, where they withheld uh, penicillin uh, from African-American sharecroppers uh, for the purpose of, uh, and I always put this in quote, uh, observing the disease process. Uh, they withheld uh, curative medicine uh, from, from Americans. Uh, and this was a study uh, that was actually paid for by the federal government. And my dad found it to be wrong and, uh, and wrote a letter to the authors of the study and to the journal uh, that he read about it in. And, you know, it was, it was sort, of, sort of a small act in a lot of ways, but uh, what I think is shocking is that he was the only doctor at the time that went on the record. A couple of years later, 
there were some media uh, investigatory uh, uh, efforts, and what happened was um, this became a matter of national uh, interest. And eventually, you know, in the early 70s, Tom Harkin and others uh, banned the withholding of medicine from from anybody for uh, uh, for research purposes. Uh, you know, for, for me, thinking about my dad. Uh, what shocks me is he never told me that story uh, until I was, uh, you know, a grown man. Uh, because for him, it wasn't that big of a deal. I mean, he j- you just sort of do the right thing, and and you move on. And maybe somebody notices, and maybe somebody doesn't. Um, but I didn't know that he had played any role in 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 that dark uh, period in American history uh, until I was probably late twenties. Now, in terms of being in the Senate, this is uh, an incredible time to be in Congress. I can only imagine, uh, given the state of turmoil in, in this administration, how would you just sort of broadly describe uh, what it's like to be on the inside? I can talk a lot about what it's like to be on the outside, but what is it like to be one of uh, one of a handful of people who, who sits in such an incredible role? Well, you know, I, when when, uh, when Donald Trump won, uh, I was in my living room with with my wife and 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 my 13 year old and my nine year old, and I, I just looked at him and I said, you know, my job just got a lot less fun and a lot more important um, because of the uh, the rules of the Senate uh, that require bipartisanship. Uh, uh, we are really the tip of the spear uh, in terms of trying to prevent uh, the worst from happening, at least in terms of lawmaking. There are a lot of things that. Uh, Donald Trump can do from the executive branch. There are a lot. There's a lot of harm that he does in terms of international relations uh, and in terms of setting a sort of toxic tone uh, nationally. But in terms of preventing him from enacting laws that would harm people, it's the Senate Democrats, and that's what I've been focusing on. And I think all of us feel that way. We feel, uh, you know, on a day-to-day. Uh, level it, it is a lot less joyful, but also there's joy in the fight. And, and I'll tell you that the the one aspect of this that is, uh, you know, the silver lining is the resistance. Uh, we've nobody has ever seen anything uh, like this. What do you say to people who say that the Democrats aren't uh, organized in their resistance on the inside, or that the Republicans are just walking all over it, even though they have the majority, that there are things that the Democrats could do, like with the nuclear option that seems to be coming up, that you all could overwhelm them with the amendments, but that doesn't seem to be the public strategy. What's your response to those critiques? Well, look, I think we ought to, I think we ought to use every bit of leverage uh, that we have. Um, and, and I also think that there's no, preponderance of, of wisdom in Washington, D.C. in terms of strategy or tactics. Uh, I think we've learned that from the 2016 election, you know, both on the Senate side and in terms of uh, the Clinton campaign, we learned that, hey, there are a lot of really smart thinkers in politics that are at the grassroots level, that may be at the state level, that may be just, you know, sitting there on Twitter ruminating about what our strategy should be. You know, we're not going to necessarily reveal all of our tactics, but the the main uh, leverage that any individual senator has is to withhold uh, his or her unanimous consent. Uh, Everything runs on what you call UC, unanimous consent. Um, You can't so much as schedule a hearing or convene uh, without unanimous consent. And, you know, listen, if you start to get into withholding unanimous consent for nonsense reasons, then, then the Senate breaks down and the country breaks down. But 
Um, there's a reason that each senator has that authority, and it's for times like this. It's for moments like this. When you have the Republicans doing something so extraordinary, so uh, mean-spirited, uh, so cruel to so so many millions of, of Americans in secret, uh, you know, it's time for us to fight back with extraordinary measures. I don't know how that manifests itself. Um, I think it's important for us to maintain some, you know, sort of tactical flexibility as we go into this week. I, I think there's a, you know, a, a reasonable shot that the public pressure on some of the more moderate uh, Republican senators will be the thing that does the trick. However, if Mitch McConnell goes through with this and it looks like they're going to, uh, you know, try to jam us and jam the American people uh, with a health care bill that's polling and, you know, around 15 percent and is going to you know, wreak havoc on American lives, then I think we've got to do every single thing at our disposal. And, and those are the conversations going on over the next couple of days. What's your take on the, the Russian involvement in the elections and the investigation by Mueller? Well, I'm, I'm confident in Mueller. I, I, I do think uh, that, you know, that we, we, normally if a gadfly says something about firing a special counsel, you would sort of dismiss it and say, well, that's a gadfly. He's, you know, uh, talking out loud about dismissing a a special counsel. But in this administration, the gadflies are often the political uh, and strategic center of gravity. So I take it very seriously uh, that there is a real possibility that the president will try to intervene with Attorney General Rosenstein and get him to fire Mueller. Uh, To be clear, the way the law works only Rosenstein can fire Mueller. Um, but, you know, he could certainly execute what was done in the Watergate era, a sort of Saturday night massacre where he will essentially fire people until he finds someone who's willing to dismiss uh, Mueller. I, I, I do think that would be a, a bridge too far, even for Republicans. And there is at least quiet talk uh, about if that actually happened, we'd likely go ahead and enact a statute, which would be a special prosecutor. And the, the person that we would hire is Bob Mueller. So I feel, you know, listen, I feel confident that 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 he's the best investigator in the country for this purpose. And he's got great bipartisan credentials. You know, one other point I, I just want to make to Ray, even though you didn't necessarily ask about it, people are perfectly capable of thinking about healthcare and thinking about uh, the rule of law at the same time, or at least in the same day or week. Um, for me, it's a little bit of a false choice. Uh, you know, in the Senate, you know, I'm on multiple committees and every day I'm thinking about commerce and ethics and appropriations and, you know, energy and civil justice. And I understand that's my profession, but I, but I think the people are engaged enough and educated enough and care enough that, um, we shouldn't have to choose between the operation of law and the rule of law and, and fighting for, for the health care for Americans. I think we got to do both. And, and, and for that matter, I think we have to continue to fight for civil justice and we have to continue to f- fight for climate action. Now, you all have been summoned to the White House twice, I believe, right? All of the senators? There was a cocktail party and I had something scheduled. I'm not sure if there was another. No, there was. There was a briefing on North Korea. And I have to say that was a, it was a valid enough briefing. It was a good uh, briefing, but it was an extraordinary and pretty unusual thing to have a hundred members of the Senate, you know, ride over on 
on buses with a motorcade, uh, you know, to, to the executive office building. They had to create a secure facility because they don't have one that big. Uh, the only secure facility that can fit 100 members is is the Senate facility. And there's, a, you know, you could have just uh, dragged the three people who were briefing us over rather than had have 100 of us go over there. And the, the only reason I mention that is that it made us feel like the whole thing was for PR rather than for, you know, a proper security briefing. And what about Comey in this moment? Do you think that that hearing uh, was a pivotal hearing in in this whole sort of saga that's happening with Trump? Did it make you think anything different about him or uh, the senior levels of the administration? So I think there's two ways to look at the Comey hearing. I mean, for insiders, I think, you know, a lot of people said, well, he didn't break a lot of new ground. And, uh, you know, they're sort of looking for the news, right? They're looking for the new facts or the new fact pattern. Um, but somebody, you know, described it to me in the following way, and I think it makes sense. You know, it's sort of like, you know, most Americans are sort of dropping into like the sixth episode of Homeland this season, and they haven't watched the first five. And Comey uh, is a storyteller. And Comey ha- is capable of organizing his thoughts and the sort of sequence of events in such a way and he's such a compelling figure just on television. The guy, you know, really knows how to perform and and, and has a lot of credibility. I think he was um, beyond inexcusable in terms of releasing derogatory information in the last election. But I don't think he did it nefariously. I don't think he was lying. I just think he had a lapse in judgment. Uh, so he's a credible guy and he told the story. And I think for the vast majority of Americans, it was the moment where they said, well, wow, this thing is really serious, and now I see sort of sort of how the sequence of events is increasingly you know pointing in one direction and the way I would characterize it is you know for 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 the folks who have lives to live and don't you know follow this day to day on Twitter and don't have time to necessarily read everything about it, it is increasingly clear that this is what it looks like um it is increasingly clear that um that the president has attempted to interfere uh, with an investigative process. Now, whether that rises to a sort of legal standard of obstruction of justice is a, is a separate question and ultimately a political question for the, for the House uh, to consider. But this is what it looks like. I mean, the, the, the president was calling you know, multiple individuals. We at least know the head of the NSA, the, head, the director of national intelligence, and, and the FBI, and committee chairs, uh, to try to stop the investigatory process, and that in itself is is at least sufficient evidence uh, uh, to consider whether or not there was obstruction of justice. No, that makes sense. His hearing was something, you know, it was like one of the most watched things in politics, uh, just from the numbers. And I think you're right that there are a lot of people who hadn't tuned into everything, but but saw his hearing and started to think differently. Now, I want to talk a little bit about Hawaii um, and ask you about what are the, the big issues that you're focused on back home? Um, and then how do you stay connected to and strive to represent the native Hawaiian communities, uh, given that you don't necessarily share their backgrounds? Uh, you are their representative, though, in the Senate. Uh, what does that look like for you? Well, Hawaii is the most isolated, populated place on the planet. So, you know, we have uh, a little more than one and a half million people. We have a, we have a dense urban area in Honolulu, 
We've got, you know, the, the joint bases at Pearl Harbor and Hickam, but we're also this incredibly vast and, and rural state in lots of ways. Uh, we're also incredibly multicultural, uh, not just because of the first people, the native Hawaiians, uh, but also because of the history of our plantation economy, where you had Portuguese and Chinese and Koreans and uh, Americans of Japanese ancestry and Filipino Americans and Puerto Ricans all come to live and work on the plantation. And that multicultural, multi-ethnic uh, uh, story is really what makes Hawaii politics. So, you know, part of part of being successful in terms of serving well, forgetting the election side uh, in Hawaii is kind of understanding that history and knowing that, you know, which, whichever ethnic uh, uh, group you may belong to, that you have a responsibility to to represent that patchwork. Um, to, to your question specifically about Native Hawaiians, you know, we've got a real challenge. Um, Native Hawaiians uh, are, are, are the only Native group without a formalized government-to-government relationship. So say, say a Native American Indian tribe um, essentially has a government-to-government relationship. So it's not a race-based relationship. It's a, it's a government, it's like a treaty. Uh, and the same with Alaska Natives. Uh, Hawaiians are still in that process of being recognized uh, by the federal government. And th- that's important, you know, as a practical matter in terms of, you know, federal revenue streams and other, other things like that, that that actually assist Native Hawaiians, uh, health care and education and housing and, and stuff like that. But it's also right because of justice. Uh, it is it is only fair that Native Hawaiians uh, are on a par uh, with with the other first peoples uh, across the country, so you know that's a high priority for me. And whenever there are Republicans in charge, uh, it's you know it's a pretty high priority for for the other side to undermine. I mean, just to give you a sense for how um, dedicated a certain portion of the right wing is to undermining Native Hawaiian rights. Uh, <laughs> You know, I did this little thing with uh, Johnny Isaacson, who, who's a senator from Georgia, Republican, and it was it was Hawaiian Food Week. It was a it was a congratulatory thing for all of our businesses that do that do Hawaiian food, and that's pretty broadly defined. But among you know the reason Johnny was interested is because uh, in Georgia the King's Hawaiian uh, Bakery uh, uh, has a big operation. So we just did this little congratulatory thing. Congratulatory resolutions pass pretty much automatically in the evening, maybe a couple of them every evening that the Senate is in session. It's just a way to, you know, use the stature of the Senate to shine a light on something positive happening. We had members of the Senate on the Republican side blocking this resolution because they didn't want to confer any additional rights uh, uh, to Native Hawaiians by congratulating, you know, King's Hawaiian Bakery and the people who make Kalua pork and the people who make guava juice and all the rest of it. I mean, it was the most preposterous thing in the world. Uh, but it shows you that there are people specifically at the Heritage Foundation whose job it is to watch all legislation for anything that might help Hawaiians and try to block it. And so that's what I'm up against. That's wild that, that they're watching even the congratulatory to the pronouncements of the Senate. That's incredible. Yeah, it was, it was pretty bad. We got it through. Uh, but at the very end, this congratulatory resolution, I was texting back and forth with a Senator who was blocking it. And he gave me these like three sentences that said, 
uh, well, I'll be willing to let it go if if you if you're willing to say nothing in this uh, uh, legislative vehicle shall confer any additional rights onto Hawaiians or any obligations onto the federal government. And I said no, and then he backed off. But that I had to work hard <laughs> to get this thing through uh, shows you sort of uh, you know that they don't. It, it's sort of in a bad the. Um, uh, Seattle Seahawks, a uh, uh, defense, right? Their, their, um, philosophy is defend every blade of grass. Right. And, and I, and I sort of feel like the right wing does a really effective job of defending every blade of grass. And for them, it doesn't matter that it's a small thing. In fact, in a lot of ways, the message they send by defending, you know, and fighting tooth and nail on the small stuff um, conveys their seriousness on the on the big stuff, and I think that p- one of the things that's happened over the last, you know, several months since Trump is that our side is now thinking, hey, maybe we should defend every blade of grass. Now, in, in that vein, what do you say to uh, to people who are like that? The left is no longer a home for them, right? That the Democratic Party doesn't speak to their lives. That they have participated and voted and called senators and showed up to rallies. They've done it, and and their material conditions have not changed. What do you say to those people? Look, I I think that we have to be able to do two things at once. Um, we have to be in the middle of the most important fight in decades, in generations, uh, maybe. Uh, in a hundred years, we don't know yet, but we are in the middle of a very important fight that has to do with the um, future of democracy, that has to do with world order, that has to do with climate, that has to do with tens of millions of Americans and how they are treated uh, by the Department of Justice. Uh, It has to do with tens of millions of Americans and how they are treated in terms of their own personal health care. So we're in the middle of a bunch of really important fights. And we have to engage in those fights and we have to do them together. Sort of the middle of the left, the sort of center, you know, right, left, you know, the the Republicans who, you know, can't stand Trump and are going to be make common cause with us for a minute. That's fine, too. The Bernie left, the Jill Stein left. My own view is that what is at stake is literally the planet and hundreds of millions of people's lives. And so we got to engage in those fights But that doesn't mean we should shy away from, you know, both a strategic and a moral critique of the Democratic Party as it is currently constituted. Right. I think it is fair to say that the Democratic Party over the last 10, 15, 20 years has lost its way, that it is hard uh, to tell people exactly what the Democratic Party stands for. and we got to do better about that. And we got to have those fights. I think that for me, you know, and I was used, I used to be, I was Democratic Party chairman in, in the state of Hawaii. So I know a little bit about these fights. My ground rule all, uh, always was we get to have these fights, but nobody gets to be engaged in this conversation about the future of the Democratic Party unless they're in, right? You've got to be committed to the future of the progressive cause, and you've got to decide that for all of its flaws, and it is flawed, like structurally, you know, in terms of strategy, it's not, it doesn't have enough money, all the rest of it, right? But for all of its flaws, the Democratic Party is the best, most realistic counterweight to what the Koch brothers, the Heritage Foundation, the RNC are trying to do. 
And so that is our vehicle. Now, should we make it better? Yes. Should we have really interesting and important policy conversations? Should we figure out how to uh, empower vulnerable conversations? I think all of that is what we have to do. But my own view is that we also have to respect the fact that for some people, I mean, there's the kind of, sorry to go along on this one, but for some people, um, it's a luxury to think about the future of the Democratic Party. For some people, it's a luxury to think about the Bernie versus Hillary thing because they're thinking, I got a pre-existing condition. So that's a very interesting right. conversation. But in the meantime, like, I might die, you know, and or, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a dreamer or my cousin is a dreamer or, you know what? I wake up every morning and I fish and I see uh, climate change just ruining my fishery. Like anybody who is dealing with the problems that need to be solved right now, or, and I know Duray, you, you, you focus a lot quite correctly on, on what's happening to African-American young men in the context of, of, of policing. So people who have those experiences, I think are, find the whole sort of critique and, you know, Bernie and Tom Perez are doing a unity commission and how's that going? That's, that's like really disconnected from anything that, that will impact them. And so I do think we got to do all that, but I think we have to put it in context, which me, you know, sort of like you come in and the, in the, in the emergency room and the patient is, you know, bleeding and then, and then somebody comes in and goes, you know, this, this guy's got high cholesterol, right? I mean, it's kind of like, no, you got you to deal with probably four or five absolutely urgent matters. And, and, and I think we got we to do these things at the same time. No, that makes sense. I think I think you're right that there are so many real life issues uh, and things happening to people that sometimes the philosophical debates uh, are less important. Now, uh, one of my last questions is: You've run for office uh, for a long time. You've been in elected office for a while. You've run for office at almost every level. Um, what is your advice to people who are looking to get engaged for the first time, whether it's running for office or whether it's another form of being involved? What's your advice to them? So I just gave a, a commencement speech, and and what I said was: start where you are, use what you have, do what you can. You know, you you whatever it is that you feel that you can do uh, right now, that is the right thing to be doing. I think there are a lot of people, you know, who've been asking me, probably asking you, Deray. You know, what what's the most efficacious use of my time? What's the smartest thing for me to do? I want to be strategic. I want to, you know, I want to help maximally. And my view is, everybody should just, you know. Start. Everybody should just do whatever they think um, they're in a position to do. Um, I'll just tell you. I mean, when I when I first ran for office, I um, I mean, I was pretty goofy walking door to door. I didn't have a proper brochure. I uh, you know I've always kind of looked young, but when I was 25, I didn't look 20. You know, and um, and nobody took me seriously, and I didn't have like a voter file, and I didn't have any money, and I just kind of walked around. And asked people if they would support me, you know, for the state house of representatives, and, and so you know, part of my advice to, to everybody, one of the reasons that the Democratic Party ha has has some structural weaknesses is that we don't have a new generation of people running for office, and I think that's about to change in 2018. You, you talk about what's happening in the Virginia uh, 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 House. Uh, there are a, a bunch of encouraging signs. I think Philadelphia, uh, a prosecutor was pretty interesting. There is a change out there 
Uh, women are running for office. People of color are running for office. And everybody's starting to figure out that what makes you a politician is a willingness to run for office. There is nothing particularly special about the category of people who are elected officials or who want to be elected officials. They've just decided to step up. And, you know, it's a citizen legislature, whether it's at the state or federal or, or county or city level. Everybody should run or find a campaign that they can get involved in. And I mean, everybody, I mean, you know, we, 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 we can uh, have a tendency to focus too much on, on, on the coasts. And so where we're weak is in the South where we used to not be weak, uh, you know, in the Midwest where we used to not be weak because you got to field candidates. You got to give people an opportunity uh, to make the case. So anybody who feels strongly about what's happening nationally I mean, stay engaged nationally, but I think you should look for a school board to run for or a county council to run for or a, a, or a candidate for the state house or state senate to, to get behind. And the thing about a state house or state senate race is, like, you can really be the difference maker. If you're willing to devote time and money to someone running for the assembly, you know, you're, you're more likely to see the fruits of your labor uh, than, you know, than if you join a you know, a presidential, a presidential campaign, whether it's money or time, it's hard. It's very diffuse. It's hard to know if you make the difference. If you're helping your buddy or your, your, your mother or your college classmate uh, run for the assembly and you're willing to give them five or 10 hours a week, that is an enormous help and you'll make a difference. Well, uh, thanks so much for being able to join me on uh, this episode of Pod Save the People. And I consider you a friend of the pod and hope to have you back soon. Thanks to the right. Anytime, man. Well, that's it. Thanks for listening to Pod Save the People and make sure that you rate it wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And make sure that you tell a friend. See you next week. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. <laughs> 